You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. A very good morning to you. Welcome along to Tuesday morning OTB AM. 24 hours is a long time if you're the coach of the international rugby side. Yesterday morning we were on here going, oh, it's going to be so hard for Joe Schmidt to pick who to play in the second row or maybe actually just to put on the bench. And now it turns out Quinn Rue is going to be on the bench because what we didn't know this time yesterday was that the two man of the match performances at the weekend by the Irish second rows who weren't in the starting 15 at the moment uh, were fairly futile gestures because both of them are out. Ian Henderson's out for an indeterminate amount of time, potentially five or six weeks with another finger injury, not the same one that he was out with before Christmas. And uh, Tyg Burns out for a minimum of the first two games. Yeah, this kind of supports your idea, though, that Six Nations should be something that we don't care too much about in the lead-up to the World Cup, that actually could we see this as a positive, that what happens if there is a situation where we get completely torn to shreds in a, in a position during the World Cup. Now, the thing is, if everybody is, say if we're 90% fit going into the World Cup, chances are you're not going to have two injuries in the same position. It helped that they were in different games. Oh, I, I, and in, like, in two games that they had to win and two bruising encounters at the weekend, and that's why two injuries have, have cropped up. When you're in the same team, uh, things happen to... It's a, less of a chance, really, that, that such a bizarre set of circumstances would actually arise. I don't so know. I'm not too worried that this is actually going to be something for the future. I mean, do you not remember the World Cup the last time, in the last game, when we had to win? Do you not remember how thin our squad, squad was in comparison to how it is now? I mean, this is why we have a squad. It's because it was definitely if, if two of our second rows drop, we still have two of the best second rows in the world who are willing to start. This makes no material change to our starting team. And of next course, one, next one down, Quinn Roos starting. Everybody's like, oh, we certainly aren't as deep at that position as we thought. Now, Quinn Roos was a part of the Grand Slam winning team. How many games did he play? Grand, Grand Slam winning squad, at least. I want to say last two games. Was he on the bench? On the bench. He was certainly, he was certainly brought into the squad late on, uh, midway through the Six Nations due to injury last year. Um, Whether or not he actually got onto the pitch, I'm pretty sure he did. Okay, maybe he did. But he, he, played, um, he played in South Africa when we were on that tour and won our first game in South Africa. And also, I think he went to Australia as well. So, Joe Schmidt clearly likes him. But he ain't at the same level as um, the two lads who were just injured and he ain't at the same level as the guys who were starting at the moment. So, I'm just saying that it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that we're suddenly down to say Tyg Furlong was to touch wood wash your mouth out say Tyg Furlong was to get injured and then Andrew Porter was to get injured what are we doing then? It's like, okay so that's an interesting that's an interesting drop off to the point where it's world class and then it's not, not world class not, not nearly world class yet um, but like sustainable and then I don't know but you see the, the, point, the fact that you're actually pointing that out almost supports the idea that this actually isn't as big a problem as you're trying to make out. Because, save one of the... Okay, first of all, we have our first choice pack pretty much at full fitness now, bar Dan Levy, were he to be first choice in his position. With the return of Sean O'Brien, everybody's fit in the back row. Yeah, but we haven't played a game in Six Nations yet. Everybody's fit in the front row. Our first choice locks are fit. Calm down. It's all going to be fine. If a, if a backup lock has to come in in the shape of Quinn Rue or Ulton Delan, who's kind of come in to be fourth choice, it seems, in this situation, then I'm not too worried. They're packing down behind the best front row in Europe, the best front row in the competition, clearly, and in front of the best back row potentially in the world. So I'm not worried at all. And let's not forget that that lock will be packing down beside either Devon Toner or James Ryan were one of them to go down. But in the, ch- the case of replacements, that will be the case. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. 
don't worry, we're, we're going to be out. This is why we, we have such a level of squad depth. Maybe Locke isn't as deeply stacked as the back row is. Is there a case, though, for actually just giving a bunch of players game time now in the big games and seeing how they do? Oh, okay, so what are you constituting a big game? Like England? Yeah, England. England, so England France, uh, Wales. Scotland away is a big game because it's away and with their World Cup opponents. I think France is an acceptable level to go after that. I think England are a tad stronger than that. We want to beat England. We, like, we want to embarrass England. It, w- it would just feel good for the soul. It always does. I mean, that's, okay. that is indisputably true, right? However, what if we lull them into a false sense of security by letting them beat us? And we're like, oh, England, you're so good. Oh, you're so amazing. Look at you with all your Brexit and stuff. It's amazing. Oh, and, and even with all those injuries you have, you still beat us. We're no good. And then we crush them in the World Cup. Crush them. At what stage? Semi-final? Whatever. Whenever we meet them. Can't really meet them until the semi-final. And you reckon that it's going to be Wales on that side of the semi-final, I think? You're not playing along with the... No, I'm not playing along with it because I think it's a lot of nonsense. I think we're going to be absolutely fine. There's no need to lull anybody into a false sense of security. We need to get used to the idea of being better than everybody else here. We're not used to this, are we? Uh, the superiority complex which we need Kerry, to build up. You, I mean, it's your in, innate default position. What are you talking about? Let's have a look at uh, Mike McCarthy's depth chart. So, uh, Devin Toner and James Ryan side by side. Are they side by side? He thought actually Devin Toner might uh, pip James Ryan if you had to pick one lock. I mean, Mike, I don't, you know, I love you and all, but you're doting. There's no way anybody's ahead of James Ryan in the second row. As a rugby player, as a, as a talent, as a ball carrier, but when it comes to the pragmatism that is sometimes required late on in Six Nations games as a line out option, Devin Toner is who you want. After his performances in the November internationals, I don't think that's as ridiculous a take as you're making it out to be. I think James Ryan is like potentially the greatest player in world rugby over the next four years. I think he, he has that level of greatness within him. And uh, Deb Toner is really good. Just stick it back up there, sorry for a second. Um, so Ian Henderson's on seven and Ty Burns on six. And, you know, probably I would have had them like an eight and an eight. But anyway, after that, John Klein was his fifth choice, who is eligible in September 2019. Mm. I mean, where, where would he be now if he was eligible? Right? And now he'd be number three, right? With two lads yes. injured. Yes, that, without question. I think, that, I think he would definitely... Well, the thing is, when it comes to Joe Schmidt's eye, maybe Quinn Rue would be ahead of him. But I think he'd probably be ahead of Alton Delan in the pecking order at the moment. Like, we were speaking about Delan a couple of weeks ago when he got his new contract with Connacht, saying that it's definitely kind of a Six Nations next year or the year after when he potentially might be able to start nailing down a, a place uh, or just being in the matchday squad regularly. Suddenly that, that's, that's been accelerated quite a bit. And it, it tends to happen around the Six Nations every year because given the attrition of the game and it's right after big European matches, there is an opportunity, there is a window of opportunity for a number of people that we didn't expect to get one. And Delan might actually be that person. Who knows what's going to happen injury-wise over the next couple of weeks. Delan's only 25 as well. You forget that, that like, um, when he was in the Ireland team a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was, I, I thought he was very impactful for somebody coming into the squad and into the team at that stage and you thought, oh, he's just going to be in the team from now on and there's obviously just been a slightly more circuitous route to get back to the point where he's going to be considered for it but like we're, we're sorted at second row. I, I just do think that it's interesting that these injuries can happen like this and we haven't gone through an injury crisis yet but when the injury crisis comes, what are we left with and have we given enough game time to people? So this is quick, the injury crisis in that position. In, the, in that position, but like in a, so when it strikes in a bunch of other positions, right? Uh, which it will do, and potentially it might not be the worst thing if it happened over the Six Nations, so we'd actually get to see what it looks like as opposed to it happening in the World Cup just before we're due to face South Africa. Um, but like, I guess this is exactly why they've given 
Quinn Roo the opportunities they've given him over the past and they've shown him that they trust him So when something like this happens. So, look, maybe it'll be fine. Maybe it doesn't matter. For me, the injury crisis can only manifest itself if Conor Murray gets injured. Like it, that, that is the one kind of one-man injury crisis. That if, if he goes down, then an Irish game plan. Well, actually, at the moment, goes with it. At the moment, you would definitely say that if he goes down, because the backups at the moment are all injured. Although Cooney's just back, is he? Yeah, fine. Like he played well, obviously, for Ulster at the weekend. Yeah. I, I just think that even if you kind of negate the, the current situation, it is also the drop-off there that perhaps Carberry has played so well over the last couple of weeks that we're not as worried about that drop-off. You've mentioned Tyke Furlong as well, another one obvious one to point out. It is really that holy trinity of Furlong, Sexton and, and Murray that can hurt us the most. I just think Murray's kind of top of that list at the moment. Uh, okay, there was some of the stuff that we want to talk about, and that is the ticket prices for the GAA. It's been a bit of a debate this week. Um, I guess it's sparked really by the fact that they've increased prices at the gate by 33%. So instead of paying 20 quid, instead of paying 15 quid, you're going to now pay 20 quid to go to a league match. Um, that's the same price across all four divisions. And there's been a bit of back and forth about this. They also put a tenner on the price of the stand tickets for the All Ireland finals. Um, and there's been strong criticism, it's fair to say, of the fact that the GAA are increasing their revenue from these games. Perhaps at a time when getting football is not really worth paying 90 quid for to go and see uh, Dublin against Tyrone in the All Ireland final. Well, exactly. I think it's the timing of this, which is very curious that there was a, a huge backlash to new rules being brought in. In my opinion, uh, a very concerted effort to ensure that one of the particular rules didn't get brought in on Saturday and uh, kind of a, a very predictable reluctance to try and fix the game of, of Gaelic football. And I, I'm not saying any of the solutions would have worked, but on the very same day for ticket prices to increase for quite often what are a lot of cases volunteers coming in through the turnstiles to ask them to pay more money uh, again this year is I think uh, a little bit I think it's a bad idea from the GA. I really think it is I don't think it reflects well whatsoever and there's been a number of questions as to why this is they say the money will go back to the clubs They've like invested in a number of other revenue streams or looked into a number of other revenue streams down through the years, like when it comes to the Sky deal and things like that. And you do wonder if there was like a, an element of acceptance as the months and years have gone by since that, that it's like, well, this is good that the GEA is making profit. And is that a, a better uh, route to go down than actually charging the, the public who are attending GEA games an extra five euro, 33.3% increase on last year's at the turnstile ticket prices? Well, I think it is. I, 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 don't, I don't think this is a good idea whatsoever from, from the GEA like the backlash it's been fairly vocal you do wonder if people are going to vote with their feet because it's going to be hard to actually distinguish that from the people who are voting with their feet because football is terrible at the moment particularly in the summertime John Horan says the economy is recovering well that's what he says is it really it's, it's clearly recovering here in Dublin and that's what we see I'd, I'd love to know people who are living around the country and I know for a fact that there are people living around the country who don't feel the economic recovery whatsoever and they've been asked to stump up the exact same amount that uh, people in the urban centres around Ireland are stumping up with like to, to, to be fair he, they did reduce the ticket prices around 2011 when the economic uh, crash was at its I guess at its worst and at this point has their recovery actually hit parts of rural Ireland which are obviously the backbone of a lot of the league games and all that sort of stuff I don't think it has I, I think that the people in, in certain counties around Ireland we feel really aggrieved with this uh, this stumping up of the, the figures and this is not to mention that they say it hasn't happened in a long time like season tickets have gone up two years ago it's now 120 euro to pay for a season ticket it was 99 euro just two years ago at this point so it is there has been more hikes than people think and it is, those figures 
So it's 120 euro right now for a GEA season ticket. I can remember the first GEA season ticket I bought, which was four years ago, and then the, the year after that as well was 99 euro, uh, and paid 120 euro for mine this year. Like, I don't know, is the GEA punter deserving of these hikes? Is the, the ticket prices really the thing they should be targeting? It's interesting looking at their figures that there was a healthy revenue figure from two years previously from gate receipts, and apparently central figures weren't improved from the football uh, last year whatsoever. So I think this is reactive to what they realise has been a terrible football championship. And on their books, they were like, great, more games, more money for us. It turns out that wasn't the case last year. Why, why is that? Because football is terrible. And what do they do on Saturday? They, like, they brushed aside a rule that like, may not have made football better, but I think it was indicative of uh, an attitude within GA circles that change is not going to happen. And John Horne is on the record from yesterday's quote saying, we're not a mad revolutionary organisation. And he's, he's dead right on that one, but he can be mad and revolutionary about stumping up 33.3% on a ticket price. All right, let's uh, tell you what's coming up. We're going to get Alan Quinlan in a little bit later on to preview Ireland against England and start talking about the English team, what we can actually expect from them in terms of the injuries they have as well. We might get an English voice on that one for you as well. That's coming up around uh, 9 o'clock. We'll see what sort of rugby England will play under Eddie Jones in this competition. And into the, It looks now like it's almost certain, barring a disastrous Six Nations, that Eddie Jones has ridden out the storm and will survive at least until the World Cup. Um, from around about 8.35, we'll get the sports news and uh, going to talk about the GA price hikes with Dick Clark in around about 10 past 8. Now, though, take it to the sports pages. Right, so we'll start with the Irish Times this morning. Uh, Sexton joins Ireland for Six Nations warm-up in Portugal. Pictures of Sexton with the referees in all of the newspapers today after Eddie Jones' comments, of course. Contapomi says, lack of game time, not an issue as long as the out-half is fit for the opener. Johnny Sexton's continuing recuperation from a knee tendon injury will take place in warm weather climbs in Portugal this week as part of an Ireland training camp. So, um, And then relegation threat, no excuse for England club struggles is uh, Thorny's column there. Um, you will fall from grace pretty quickly if you think you're better than you are. So um, this is Conor O'Brien, Lancer's Conor O'Brien. Uh, eager to follow in the footsteps of Robbie Henshaw. So, Conor O'Brien was 11 in 2008, uh, which would make him 22 now, right? 21 or 22, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the uh, Leinster net gets cast ever wider as they search for uh, players who ultimately will end up probably playing for Munster. Henderson and Burnout. Ian Henderson and Tyke Burnham ruled out of Ireland's Six Nations opener against England on the 2nd of February. And then Sarri in peace talks with his Chelsea squad. Is this... What, is this I kind of just thought this was like, that'd be grand. But then you remember it's Chelsea and you think, mm, maybe it won't be. Chelsea could finish 13th if um, they always decide to... No, we've seen this before. Uh, Maritza Sarri held talks with the Chelsea squad at the club's training ground yesterday. He's clear the air after accusing the players of being difficult to motivate. I mean, he's just telling the truth. Yeah, definitely, he spoke in Italian when he gave all these quotes for the first time in a while. It is, his, angry. it is his job to motivate them. So if you're saying you can't motivate them, then you can't do your job. And that's what they'll use against you when they decide not to pay you money when they sack you. One of the more worrying developments I'd imagine for Sarri this morning is that Eden Hazard says he might actually stay at the club. So he's like, yes, I am going to stay and make your life miserable for the next six months. Sarri's also said that I'm probably going to get sacked in like a year, so I may as well uh, speak the truth now. Djokovic has key to unlock Nishikori so um, Novak Djokovic, Djokovic and Key Nishikori are playing in the Australian Open we didn't actually turn that on so I can't give you the very latest uh, in that one MP urges racing to tackle political ignorance or face dire consequences 
One of raising staunchest supporters in Parliament is warned there could be dire consequences if political indifference and ignorance of the sport are not tackled. Uh, Labour MP Conor McGinn was... Um, his, this warning was seized upon by senior racing figures yesterday who described the understanding and support for the industry in both houses as very strong. Very strong. Wow. That's very strong. I've got the mail today. Uh, sorry about that. Price is right. Horn insists ticket increase long overdue. There won't be another one for eight or ten years and then there'll only be one in 20 years on. Hmm. Well, the, re- the reason why it's gone up to 20 euro as opposed to 18 euro is because it's handier for people at the turnstiles, he says, that they, they didn't want to be handing out two euro coins and change. Um, or three euro, I don't know, is it going to be 17 or 18 euro? That 20 euro, just round it up. He says that we needed to round it up. What do you think of that? I think if you're charging the very backbone of your community because it's handier for people working at the turnstiles, I think that is uh, the incorrect decision. What would um, Tony McGregor say? Well, yeah, Tommy outside was saying that uh, you know they, they don't like coinage. They, that's what they, they share in common with one another, the GEA and Tony McGregor. Ireland hit with lock crisis ahead of Six Nations, and then coaches look on course to picture of Robbie Keane and uh, Jim McGuinness and uh, friends. Isn't that what they said? So it's um, they're alongside the head coach of Shamrock Rovers under 19, Stephen Rice, and the ex-Canadian international Jimmy Brennan, who are all taking part in the pro license. Let's picture Jim McGuinness and Big Mick, two silver foxes. Like I wonder, Jim, how long is it before Jim McGuinness is involved in the Irish setup? Post Stephen Kenny, probably. <clears throat> Whoever the manager is after that, then, or I suppose at an underage level, it could he be Stephen Kenny's under twenty-one successor? I think, I think I'm, I'm willing to make a bet with you right now that Jim McGuinness will be involved at some level with the under twenty-ones. Maybe not as the, maybe not as successor, but potentially like working with his successor. At what stage does the Irish football fraternity accept Jim McGuinness as one of the, as one of their own? I think they've already done it. I think he's on that B license or the A license course, the pro license, and um, and he's clearly a very good networker. And so he'll be making buddies with these guys, and they will understand that this is somebody who has like dedicated the last eight or nine years of his life to becoming a really good football coach. And I think he's smart enough to be able to do it. When you think of some of the stupid people who are able to be successful in management at Premier League and Championship level, and you think this guy is a bit of a like coaching guru, very very powerful in company. Like, of course he's going to make it as a football manager. Yeah, at some level. There is also the element of actually investing in one of those courses. He is dedicated to the cause, McGuinness. I'm sure he's not going to be let down from a lack of work ethic. And yeah, that, that picture certainly suggests to me that they're, they're getting on pretty well. I, I do wonder if there is still a kind of a, a sense that he's not one of us just yet. But maybe on the graduation day, once he gets his uh, badge, they'll be like, yeah, you're one of us now, Jim. This bit, this bit um, so obviously comes from yesterday's um, John Horan comments as well. Parky Cueve bill of £110 million would be unlucky. An unlucky bill for 110 million. Don't you have accountants who can tell you the exact amount? And auditors who can tell you? You do have accountants and auditors and quantity surveyors and people who are managing this process the whole way along. So if it's, if it's lucky or unlucky, unlucky is an unusual choice of words for, for the GEA's money, which is going to be spent and given away to a third party, builders, lawyers, architects, Whoever it is, uh, electrical contractors. It's funny. This hundred and ten million is un- is unquantified, but the thirty three and a, a third percent increase on the ticket price—they know exactly what that's going to do. Like, mm. 
the GAA is a really brilliantly run organisation when it comes to their finances. So somebody somewhere knows exactly how much pork and is going to cost. And it's mad that the president of the organisation is saying stuff like, it'd be unlucky if this bill runs to £110 million. What's the facts? Why do we not know the facts? Why is the GAA's money being spent in this way? And why is there not a definitive number? Because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't appear as if the president knows exactly what the outcome is going to be. And if he doesn't, why doesn't he? Why has he not made it his business to know? Yeah, he, he, that's ex- exactly the tone from it yesterday, that uh, he will hope to have some solid facts and figures pretty soon. It does appear that there were solid facts and figures a couple of weeks ago. It was just varying degrees of actually how you'd actually paint this. Now, um, the Cork GEA board have said, really, it's not as bad as it looks, whereas Peter McKenna was saying that it is as bad as it looks and uh, this is not a good situation and Croke Park need to take control of Parky Cueve. And it seems that John Horn is somewhere in the middle there, which is uh, rather unusual. I would have thought that the 110 thing was kind of a, a done and dusted sort of situation. Now, yeah, that was exactly. a figure. And so maybe that wasn't. Horn hopeful Parky Cueve overrun is less than feared. GEA President John Horn has revealed the final cost of Parky Cueve's redevelopment is highly unlikely to run to 110 million, a figure initially put forward by Peter McKenna last month. So uh, McKenna stated in mid-December it had become clear the amount spent in the Cork Stadium way exceeded what people thought and that the end figure would be probably close to £110 million. And Tracy Kennedy came out and said no, £86 million. That estimate remains in place. And then um, John Horan says we'd be very unlucky if the build figure actually reached £110 million. I mean, is it mad to put this story beside the increase in ticket prices and go, what the hell's going on? No, that was the first thing I thought. It was like, what's the biggest financial story in the GEA over the last couple of weeks? And it is the Parky Cueve situation. Croke Park are taking control of the Parky Cueve situation, if we're to believe everything we read, and they're taking control of something that, has caused, that could cause a huge amount of debt. Why would, why would they suddenly then come back and launch a, a pretty significant rise on uh, revenues well, I think that's a, a pretty good reason to do it. And is it a good reason? Well, no, it's not. It's a terrible situation that they found themselves in. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable to, to put two and two together there. The, I think they have said, though, that it is nothing to do with it. I'm, the, I'm not quite sure, but I, I think they have said that Parky Creep has nothing to do with it. Um, that it is just to do with you know, changing times and all that, despite the fact that you know, our Irish people are earning 33.3% more than they were the last time ticket prices increased. Probably not. So remember Tracy Kennedy gave that interview and said that there'll be no extra costs on the court clubs for the overrun. Does this mean that the GAA coffers are going to be... So, you know, they, this, this, there's an extra million going to... Uh, half a million this year is going to clubs, John Horan said, and he's already given an extra half a million in recent years, so that'll be over his tenure, a total of a million. But isn't that the amount they're raising from the All-Ireland Final increased tickets? Isn't that extra tenor on both games? Ultimately going to roughly raise about a million? Yeah, that'll be 800 grand... Uh, well, I suppose you're not including terrorist tickets in that, but let's call it six. Let's call it six, seven hundred grand. Yeah, so uh, to split the difference. Yeah, so that that club, extra club money is essentially coming from the Ireland finals. Where's the extra money from the um, fiver increase in the league games? Qualifiers are going up as well. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, qualifiers are. The uh, Donica Boyle has it all outlined nicely in, in the Irish Independent this morning, um, in terms of the actual increases on the right hand side. Um, so, if you're looking at the the final, qualifiers up a fiver from up from twenty to twenty five for the fourth round. Qualifiers first, second, and third round up a fiver to twenty. So I was just looking at it earlier on the, the total cost for say uh, a, a Dublin football fan who's pl- paying full price to go to all their games. 
this year, and you'd expect they're going to go to the All Ireland final, it would be three hundred and eighty-five euro, which I, I'd expect is far higher than ever it was during the, the peak of the Celtic Tiger. Um, obviously, there's more games and stuff like that, but those those extra games are supposed to bring in extra money last year, and it, it seems that it hasn't actually achieved that. And uh, I guess football is to blame for that. Like the semi-final attendances last year were desperate. And can, can, the, the thing is, though, can you actually blame that on Mayo not being there? Are Mayo to blame for all of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them not getting to an All-Ireland semi-final has uh, forced the GEA into finding and, money from and elsewhere. And here's the thing, when they recover this year, the, the figures, the attendance figures will go through the roof, and everyone will be like, oh, it, it wasn't the game that was the problem. The game's fine. And, they, and nobody cared about the prices going up because everybody pays to go and see their county, which is exactly, you know, it's why Man United can uh, introduce a new shirt or a variant of a new shirt as often as they do. It's why Liverpool are making 100 million quid. It's like uh, sports fans are locked into being sports fans and supporters. Uh, back page of the Herald is Battle of the Bruin. City star excited by title five race with leaders Liverpool. And you've also got that second row double hit for Ireland, says Desbury. That's a picture of Tyburn on the back of the Herald. The back page of the Irish Daily Star is disgraceful. Inter-county managers have GEA by the throw. For people listening, the back page of the Irish Daily Star reads disgraceful. The back page isn't disgraceful. Awfully hero depressed by state of the game. Uh, so this is Eugene McGee has labelled the complete control inter-county managers have over players uh, as absolutely disgraceful. And you've also got uh, those John Horan comments yesterday saying that the strong economy can justify the hikes. So uh, there's more money in everybody's pockets, apparently, and they can justify uh, paying the extra money for league tickets and championship tickets. And then Hazard hinting at Chelsea U-turn, as I've already mentioned. He could decide to stay at Chelsea, the Belgian has said, over the last 24 hours. A back page of The Sun is Eddie Mad, City Chiefs video bid to prove refs aren't fair on stir. Eddie Mad, I like it. I like it as well. Is it as, is it as good as Battle of the Brian? Uh, Probably not. <laughs> Battle of the Bruyne, whatever you want to go with. I, I, I think uh, I think the Herald wins this morning. Back page of the mirror is you're getting the sack. Gary Neville says Blues manager Sarri's right to take on Stamford Bridge stars before he is axed. And then uh, tennis leading the way on the UK back pages. The Daily Telegraph sports section goes with Serena is the real number one. Williams beats top-ranked Halep to stay on course for 24th Grand Slam title. And uh, in the back page of The Guardian, it is Williams the Conqueror. Serena Williams celebrates defeating Simona Halep and Harmony at the Den. Millwall and new mayor ready to make plans for renovation. All right, so um, let's move on. Shane Lowry was on last night with Joe talking about his hopes for this year and how he plans to make the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Uh, obviously, my schedule changes now because I'm in Mexico. I'm in the Players' Championship. I'm in... Uh, you know, I'm in the World Match Play. I'm yeah. hopefully going to be in uh, Augusta. You know, tournaments like that. So I, I, I really like. I haven't. I've, I've had a look at the schedule over the last couple of days. But it, this win actually does lead me to be playing a little bit more in America over the next couple of months. But yeah. that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going there trying to get my PGA Tour card back. I'm going there because they're the biggest events in the world. That I'm in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I've got to go and play in them if. You know, if I want to, I suppose eat at the top table in golf, that's there the event you, you're playing in, and you know I'm obviously very lucky and very happy that I'm going to be in those events. So, um, over I'm playing Dubai this week, and over the next two three months I'll be playing like the big events in America, and the odd one I'll be playing uh, like I'm playing the Zora Classic before it. Um, I'll probably be playing Bay Hill because it's top 50 in the world event. Right. But other than that, I won't be playing too many regular events. What I'm trying to say is I won't be trying, I'm not trying, I'm not actively trying to get my PGA Tour card back. Yeah. Do I, I guess see that, myself as a yeah. European Tour player and I want to play the next Ryder Cup. 
when I play the next Ryder Cup, I feel like I need to be playing in Europe. Right. I presume you text Padraig Carrington and said, well, look, whatever happens now, I'm definitely a wild card pick, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I uh, not really along those lines. But I did. Yeah, I was talking to Matthew. He's actually. I think he could be here. In, I think he's here in Dubai on holiday. So he texted me on uh, Saturday night um, when they landed to see if the party was still going. But I was, I was having the bed at that stage. And uh, yeah, um, obviously I'm good friends with Eric, and that's my plan for the next two years is to to be on that plane going yeah. to Wisconsin with them. Yeah, it's handy when the Ryder Cup captain is one of your best mates and you've been travelling the world with each other for ages. It's like, And then you start to play really well when he gets named Ryder Cup captain, obviously. Yeah, that helps massively, the fact that you start to play really well. It is a situation where you're like, I really hope I can make this team automatically because it'll be amazing. don't really want to be in a situation where I need to depend on a wildcard pick because Patrick Harrington is definitely the sort of captain where he'd be like, nah, just pick, pick what I see. I'm only picking you as a golfer. I'm not picking you as a mate. Uh, so I, I think that's certainly his aim. And he's been very vocal about that, in fairness, over the last two weeks, that the Ryder Cup is, uh, is on the horizon. And he's always been very honest when he talks about his goals and uh, any disappointments even that he's had over the last few years, that that singular focus is now something that Shane Lowry has, that when you have that and playing the best that you can play on a consistent level, because that's what's required to make a Ryder Cup team, then results like the weekends suddenly just fall into place. And who knows, that could exactly, that could, that's exactly what might happen on the biggest stage of all in one of the four majors this summer or next summer. So it's exciting times from Shane Lowry because as I was saying yesterday, when he's on, he's, he's just really hard to bet against. Well, that's the thing. And the other, the other thing is that he's kind of lucky that this didn't happen around the time of like the Portugal Masters or one of those smaller tour events where he comes out, he d- dominates the field and wins by 10 strokes. It's like, no, I'm going to be on form when like 14 of the world's top 50 players are there and there's a million plus Mm. for winning and it's a Rolex series and it automatically catapults me into the rest of the season like it's the perfect time to be winning yeah like um, it, it's it could have been like him against uh, a lot of nobodies really if it yeah. was later on in the year in the European Tour and that's no disrespect to the European Tour but it's just the, the facts of the matter really when it, when it gets into around the times of the summer especially around Augusta and around the USPGA and the US Open when everybody is playing stateside week in week out to try and get tuned up for those so it's worked out perfectly for him and also as well just the start of the season because quite often say in Rory's case over the last couple of years he's sort of hit a bit of form late on in the year and you're like geez, I wish he did this a little bit earlier on in the season so it's, it's rare that you know, we, we've had an Irish golfer who's won the first event of the season. Yeah, it'd be nice if like, they could all just coalesce over the course of the year so there's somebody doing well every week. That would be nice. That would help. Especially around uh, June or July, rather, when the um, Irish Open is on the hinge. Right, let's move on because we want to talk about the um, big GAA stories over the uh, last couple of while. Um, I'm going to read this tweet from Dick Clerkin yesterday, uh, or on the 19th, sorry, so a couple of days back at this stage. Anyone complaining about the price of GAA tickets, jog on. As a whole, the GAA is still largely undervalued by any comparison. For example, it'll cost you €36 to watch a Munster, less Irish players take on Zibre in March, will cost me €15 to watch Monaghan against Dublin next weekend. Dick, good morning to you, how are you doing? Hello, Ger. How you doing? How you on? Um, an interesting response to your tweet. Ah, yeah. Listen, you're always going to get a mixed bag. I suppose you sort of set yourself up for these times. Bunny hadn't been on Twitter for a long time, and a few free hours, so I said I'd have a bit of a bit of bit of not fun, but but genuine interaction. Because listen, I I do get, as you can sort of see from those, get a wee bit risen sometimes when everyone takes the opportunity to give the GA a kick, you know, and it seems to be just you know, sort of open season no matter what it is and, and this was the latest. Like, the reality is, you know, just break it down and I heard uh, Shane, 
and Donald they were having a, having a chat um, on, on the radio as well about it. I'm going to Dublin and Monaghan on Sunday. It cost me 15 euros. I have the ticket in my hand. I'm taking my two boys for free. That's unbelievable value by any metric. Okay, and, and I don't care what you compare to sports, go to the cinema. If we took, wanted to take them swimming to the pool next door, to cost me that. If I wanted to go into town for a coffee and a bun, as we call it, it'd be a tenner. It's great value. So regardless of it's a price increase, there has been a price increase in 2011. You know, I, I just can't, can't understand. It gets free to bring your children. Free. What can you bring your children now to, at the, this day and age in, in modern-day Ireland for free? Like, do people want the GA to actually give them money at the gate? Is it only then they'll be happy? Like, I, I just these things, conversations, just uh, raise me so much because they just lose all perspective. Well, speaking of perspective, can we can we um, tie the other big GA finance story into this and, and talk about Porky Creeve? I guess a lot yeah. of people are concerned about the optics of... A massive, it seems on the face of it, and the story has essentially come from Croke Park, the, the most qualified person in Ireland to talk about the cost of a stadium is Peter McKenna, who was centrally involved in the, the building and the running of the new Croke Park. So he knows ins and outs exactly of, of how much that's going to cost. And before Christmas, he was talking about a 24 million overrun in the cost of Porky Cueve. So GA members are looking at what has what seems to be a, a, um, a, a black hole, at least in the knowledge of how much Porky Creeve is going to cost. And then they see a price increase and they put two and two together, naturally enough, because uh, organisation needs to plan for future loss of potentially 24 million. Organisation increases revenue over here. It's not a million miles away for people to go, uh, factor A causes factor B. Okay, we're playing devil's advocate here if we want to join the two. Like, the reality is, if you want to do a quick sum on what they might get out of those modest price increases, it'll not do an awful lot in terms of plugging that hole. In terms of the Porky Cube conversation, that's totally different. Like, that is an absolute disgrace from all concerned if that level of overrun is established. Like, I'm not, uh, there's nobody's going to defend that. I certainly am not. Um, I don't know enough about it. I can't comment on it. I did think right throughout the project in its initial inception that it all looked a little bit cheap for what you're getting down there when you look what it cost to build things anywhere um, that they were going to do this for the money that it did so it's probably no surprise that it is actually coming in around a real figure but that, that, that's that's something I don't know enough about but if the overrun is what it's been stated at and that yes you're right that money has to be found somewhere um, that's very very uh, regrettable and, and people should be held to account for that and um, I, I, I would hope that they would be earlier. Dick, do you think it's fair to compare uh, the GEA as a volunteer-led organisation with something like uh, the Guinness Pro 14? Yeah, okay, I get into that. Okay, and I think this this was very simply down to value. Like at the end of the day, whether it's pro or amateur, the money in my pocket and the money of people going to watch games doesn't matter. We all earn it from the same places. We all get it from the same source. So it's then about how we spend our money. That was the, the basis of the conversation. So how then do we choose? How is it okay to choose to spend that money, um, multiples of it, to go and watch pro sports? But then we find a problem with it um, to watch uh, a sport just because the players aren't paid doesn't mean that the value of the product isn't there. People take offence when you call it a product, but that's what it is. Like that's like it is down to basic economics. I want to 
give my money to something to be entertained. That's why a lot of us go to any anything, a concert, um, a cinema, a football game. And that's a very simple comparison. To go and watch a Division 1 game, so I go to Croke Park, um, you're going to go to even go into the, the qualifier games, you might only pay 20 euro and your kids will go free. That is an amazing value for me as a customer um, compared to other sports, regardless of people have been paid or not. And this defence that is a pro sport is okay, we know where the money is going. We say it's okay then to charge 70, 80 pounds a week in the Premier League to line the pockets of, of agents and players who are played ridiculous amounts of money. People are actually saying that's okay just because that's the way it is. It absolutely isn't okay. So therefore, you know, so that, that, that argument doesn't really stand up when you bring it to its full extension. Like the, there is sort of there is sort of an acceptance though about the, the grotesque capitalism in, in professional sports, and I'm not saying that's fine, but I'm certainly not saying that it's fine to just project that value onto the GEA and to what is supposed to be the values of, of the Gaelic Athletic Association. But it's not fine. Like that's what I'm but I don't think people accept it. There's no choice. Like there's no choice if you want to go and watch Liverpool or Man United. You now have no choice but to empty your pockets uh, to bring your child. If you want to go and watch uh, Ireland play the All Blacks or Ireland play England, you've no choice but to fork out huge sums of money because that's just the market. That doesn't mean that it's right. That's just the model. The G haven't gone down that route, so there is no comparison. G are not looking to to bleed their supporters um, for all the majority of the games. Then people sort of throwing in the All Ireland. That's a totally separate discussion. You know, the, the, this business of a tenner in the All Ireland. And it's going to cost me eight or nine euro, eight or nine, eighty or ninety euro to bring the eight or nine year old to an All Ireland final. All due respect, an eight year old is no business in All Ireland final for ninety euro. Okay, I never went to All Ireland final for an eight year old. Uh, you know, so, so that's that's that. You know, that got pulled into it as well. But, gee, I go back to the uh, original point. Well, well, hang on a second. So, sorry, sorry, sorry. Hang on. Just just on that yeah, point, right? So you're saying yeah. you can bring your two kids to the league matches and go all year, and then say on and go on a slalom and you run to an All Ireland final. You won't be able to bring your kids. If I want to bring them and pay 80, 90 euro, that's my decision, as it is for everyone. But but that's the decision. In the same way as if I wanted to bring my child to watch Ireland play England in the Six Nations, that's what I have to pay. If I wanted to bring them across the water to watch Liverpool play Burnley, that's what I'd have to pay. That's my decision. Yeah, okay, I, that's I get that. I get I that. I, so if you accept you're that not, logic yeah. for pro games, how do you not accept the same logic then for the GEA? Well, because, hang on a second, you're not from Burnley, you're not from Liverpool, you're actually from Monaghan, and your county are going to be in an All-Ireland final and there, I, I just think this is the key point, right? The All Ireland final. I, I understand that it's the easiest way to raise 1.2 million or whatever it is they raise from the two finals. At the stroke of a pen, it happens, and they'll sell out, and ultimately people will find the money. But there, you know, say you're a family from Kildare and Kildare reach an All Ireland final. Are we really saying to that family that you're going to have to spend 360 quid for a couple and their two kids to go and watch their All Ireland final? It's a huge. Yeah, it's, it's a huge amount of money. Paid. Monaghan got to an All-Ireland final. I honestly, sitting here now, I don't think there's anything I wouldn't spend to have my family there. And that's the truth. I'm sitting now considering a holiday for my family, right? Like most people with their kids, all right? What are we all willing to pay to bring our kids over to, to Spain or to France for a camping holiday or whatever? Thousands. Don't do it every year on a whim. I would pay anything cheap. If I could get four tickets, if Monaghan got to an All-Ireland final, I had the privilege to get enough tickets to bring my family, I would be thankful for it. And what I would pay versus what that occasion and that memory is for a lifetime is insignificant. 
And I that's the point people totally miss. The all it's, it's not everybody understands that. A privilege. I, it's not a it's not a right just to go because you've gone to games. You know who goes to all Ireland final games. It's patrons, it's supporters, it's people who get their tickets every year, it's a reward for the work that they've dedicated. It's not just everyone that has been to a game all year. And that's just the reality. There's only eighty thousand people are, can get, everyone can't go. You are pricing families out of it though. That's what happens. Like you know, so you're, you're talking about people who can afford camping holidays in France. But the reality of our economy at the moment, irrespective of what John Horan is saying, is that there are vast swathes of people who are just about making ends meet. And what, what happens with these price increases for all Ireland finals is that then it does become a dream that those families can go. And if that's, if that's where the organisation is going, that's fine. But you have to accept that that's the decision you're making, that you're prioritising the patrons and the upper middle class who can afford to spend 360 quid to bring their family versus those people who are working class and who are just about keeping the wolf in the door, Dick. I think you're, you're pushing it a bit. Like, we're all living in the same country. Absolutely, we all know that there's people struggling on the margins here. But as a society, at this point in time, in 2019 Ireland, yeah, you live in Dublin, I'm even in Monaghan, we walk around the streets, we look at society, we rank the shopping centres, you know, I and mean, this is not an excuse or a rationale to try and extract money, but we can see how people are spending their money at Christmas. We can, so this notion that you can't afford, like the reality is, if, over the course of a national league, the price increase might cost you know ten to twenty euro depending on how you goes. But let's be honest about it, okay? You know we want to break that down. Like well, why? What like the cinemas? There's all these different facilities that are, are being kept going. You know, parents have no problem spending hundred euro. The same. These are the same people. I, I used to I go to the swimming pool cost 100 euro to send your, your, your child to go for 10 swimming lessons yeah they're all they're all for profit organisations though you, do now you have to pay for yeah it's everything. true it's true you do except like they're all the for profit organisations that's the point they're all run so that a, a business can make money and, and look maybe that's exactly where the GA needs to, to go and just say yeah look we do need to make money and this is the reason why we need to make money and this is where we're spending it and maybe I they're just not doing a very great, good job of that I give, okay I, I'm going to give you a great example and this how this is how hit home how undervalued the G is at the minute, right? I was I was talking to somebody from from Anna there recently, right? And they were saying about Emma Skill and Gales that they're doing great work at underage level, loads of coaches, you know, the town team hasn't been doing well for a long time. Would have been a, a powerhouse for Manor football years ago, and they're doing great work, and they're getting great numbers at underage level. Okay, charging they weren't charging anything for the kids to come. Okay, next thing they found in the summer, the numbers fell off dramatically, and they were wondering what has gone on here. They found out that Ballinamanard football club, Crossroad, a very good soccer club in, in Fermanagh, had started up the train. And they were charging every kid £100 to go for their training, their coaching sessions. Every, every kid had to pay £100. And basically, when they talked to the parents, you know what the parents said? They said, well, I have to pay £100 for them to go to the soccer. If I'm going to pay £100, I'm going to send them to the soccer as opposed to going to you. Now, if, if you want an example of how the GA is undervalued, they're your perfect example and how, how how people as a society undervalue the GA. Because they were getting it for free, it didn't nothing to do with the product. I have no doubt what they were both getting was, was equal in terms of the quality of the training. But that somebody was getting it for nothing, they didn't value it. And that, to me, is at the essence of where people have their, their angst with the GA. They don't value it enough. 
the thing is, it's it's never been free to attend a match. To, like it's, we've always paid for it. It's, there has always it been a value placed in it. What that is, is kind of subjective. And it you say that children. you pay to be entertained. Right. Like were you entertained last summer when the the figures were declining rapidly when it comes to I guess Super Eight games and then the the impact that, that has on the Ireland semi-finals. Terrible attendance figures at both semi-finals. That's now you're getting into the entertainment value of what you pay, and that's if you want to have that conversation, have it. That's separate to what the original conversation. This again happens with the You go off on these tangents, trying to find justification. Okay, so we want to talk about the quality of football that's been offered. Yeah, it's not great, but sure, it's not the same for everything. There's plenty of rugby games or rubbish, plenty of soccer games are rubbish. You don't look for your money back going out the door. Plenty of games went to last year, brilliant. Clonus uh, last year, uh, Monaghan and, and Kerry. I'll remember that game, that occasion, forever and a day, as will, as will uh, everyone that was there. Great. And I don't know what it cost me, 20 euro, it would have been worth twice that because it was a fantastic occasion. You can't get them all right. But yes, we all acknowledge that you know, as as a whole, intercounty football has has an issue there. But that's that's separate now to to pricing. Do you think? Do you really believe it is separate from pricing? Is this is this not all part of the same? Like when when we all think about life, we don't think here's a silo, there's another silo, there's another silo. Like it seems that one of the knock-on impacts of less people going to matches last year again, has been a price increase. It seems that one of the knock-on impacts of the massive hole in the Parky Creeve finances has been an increase in ticket prices. The GA needs to increase its revenue. I'm sure their commercial department have been tasked with like much higher uh, levels of income as a result of what's going on in the background as well. So you can be sure that they will ramp up their commercial activity and, and I, you know, fair play to them, that's exactly what they should be doing. But when it comes to asking your members to pay more for a product that at the moment the organisation itself doesn't feel is going the right direction. That again just seems to be a little bit, it just jars with people. The game seems to be in crisis. You've got um, seasoned watchers of it saying that they wouldn't pay to go and, and see it anymore. Niall Moyne has been saying that for a couple of years and people are now kind of rounding behind that. That's crystallising into something of a movement. Attendances are down because the, the championship isn't competitive in essentially certainly two provinces and, and maybe the other two provinces it is but then the Super 8 was a bit of a fiasco last year with the way that the Dubs got two games at home as well so that's the thing that you're asking people to pay more money for I'm not sure that the entertainment can be um, divorced from the ticket prices <laughs> not uh, not to a second well, the reality is right so, so again go down to you know, the price influence on behaviours and again you know you're into simple economics here okay you know what are you willing to pay to go and, 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 and attend an event or whatever it is like hey Mon and I think are a way to carry and mail I think right and we are sitting to say you know we're going to go to those because it's going to be a weekend or a day and might have to stay somewhere or whatever I can tell you one thing that's not going to influence my decision one bit and I not don't like to speak for people but I'd say it's something similar whether I have to pay 15 or 17 euro for a ticket Okay, because that is a, a fraction of the, the outlay, and that's the same for championship games or whatever. Like it's you know, so we have to be realistic about how much people will influence their decisions over a couple of euros, and that's in reality what it is. That's not overstate how much this is. You know, like you can prepay tickets for for the league for fifteen euro, it was thirteen last year, so two euro. That's, let's be honest about it, lads. We're having a conversation in most circumstances over two euro. Okay, so let's not over overextend it. Now, 
if you want to talk about the the, the quality of, of of an offer, you have the GA, and and we know it about it. It's in terms of the super race, the structures, the way the game's been played, and in many instances, it's not up to scratch. And that that I would be the first to say that that has to be addressed. Um, I think it gets a bad rap. A lot of it is bad. You know, the marketing around games doesn't help. Everything is sort of everything is negative in the build-up to games. It doesn't help. We've almost sort of consigned it to been to been rubbish before the ball is even kicked. Whereas that that same rule doesn't apply to any other sport I can watch. Everything is built up to be the, you know a great game. Doesn't matter who's playing on on the Premiership or in the Pro 14s. You know, whereas the Gaelic football at the minute, you know, people have always been put off to go into a game before a ball has been kicked, which is unfortunate. But that is where we're at, and that's largely fed from a lot of poor quality that's been served up, and that is. Go back to the rule changes that were attempted there. That all feeds into that, but that's something hopefully we will come out of. Dick, why, why do you think that the attendances were down in the semi-finals last year? Because it seems to me it's one of two options: is either that people have paid too much money because of the new structures, because of the super eights, or that the games were expected to provide low entertainment value. Two simple reasons, in my opinion. One, Mayo wasn't there. <laughs> you can't blame Mayo for this. No, Mayo bring a huge crowd. You ask, you ask, you ask, you ask attendances, right? So this is simple. Mayo bring a huge crowd. Both of the semi-finals right. are terrible attendances. Mayo can only play in one semi-final. Sorry, Mayo. There's four teams. Mayo bring a huge crowd. Monaghan were in it. Monaghan have a small following relative to the likes of Mayo. Okay, so there's so many supporters. Monaghan you can break to a game. You know, it would matter. You know, so there was a good Monaghan Tyrone crowd there, but they were never going to fill Croke Park because they just simply wouldn't have the volume of supporters okay great great that they are um, Dublin and Galway and I, I I remarked going into the stadium last year I was working at the, the Dublin Galway game the, the lack of atmosphere and that was generally fed by there was seemed to be a serious apathy amongst the Galway support a lot of them didn't travel um, for whatever reason maybe they think the Galway hurlers were going well at the time they had put up a very poor showing against Monaghan the week before they just felt you got, you they got just got their first Pro Park win in, in years and years and years it was their best year in football that's in, in a decade and a half like I can't see how there was apathy around the football team uh, but there was I'm, I'm not saying that you know there, there was there was actually I, I shared a taxi to the game with Park Joyce because we were we were, in, we were we were in with yourselves if you remember before that game Joe and um, he was saying yeah there's just really really bad atmosphere around Galway I think that just the whole mo- momentum had fallen out of that team you know after the defeat in in, uh, in Galway against Orange Salt Hill against Monaghan there was a very small Galway crowd you know again I couldn't believe it for a county that had taken away that so long to get to an all Ireland semi-final there was such a poor crowd the dubs didn't you know, there wasn't, so there wasn't a, there wasn't there wasn't that huge excitement or drive around the semi-final that you normally get and there probably was a bit of an overhang from the Super 8 so no point in saying otherwise because people had been on the road and that, that, that contributed to it so there's a few things there I was very surprised at the Dublin Galway game with the lack of atmosphere around it um, Monaghan thrown great atmosphere but there's only so many people who are ever going to get to that game because again small counties so you, you don't put it down to the fact that people were completely not, not ripped off, like according to you the ticket prices are fine, but the volume of, uh, of the outlay that they had to do to get to their Super 8s games was not a factor here whatsoever. It's just, my point here is that it's the timing of this which is almost as curious as anything else, Dick, because like you look at uh, GA gate receipts from 2017, around 35 million euro, and then it was close to, that was up 5 million euro we understand on the previous year's take. Now we understand last year there was no increase whatsoever on this, so I'm concluding here that the GEA need to increase the 
actual cost of the ticket because the attendances aren't going up. And I think that comes back to a poor quality affair or people just being priced out of it just with a, a higher volume of matches. Do you not accept that at all? So, sorry, just to go back on your on your point. So, the the, the the get receipts were up last year, and there was no price increases. So that that extension is that there was an increase in attendances. Now, obviously, the super rates contributed massively to that. So, to offset both. So, you know, the thing, no, the thing is, there was no extra revenue last year. So uh, the, the big increase five million more in get receipts. Yeah, the, you said, no? the previous year, the twenty the twenty seventeen was up in twenty sixteen by five million. Yeah, 2018 showed no increase. Yeah, 2018 was was no increase. Yeah, and I would, I would, I, I, okay, because I, there was a, a big drop off we found in provincial games. The, the, the dubs factor is playing in. Lads, we can't dispute that. This you is se- this to, is central revenue. Five, no, 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 no. Five years ago, the dubs were were filling out. Every time Dublin played in Croke Park, played a Leinster game, there was huge crowds. Like that has fallen off big time because there's there's actually an apathy in, in Dublin supporters now. They're not going to all these games, and certainly the players. Are. So that that's having a big impact. Dublin's dominance in Leinster is having an impact on attendance. Absolutely no doubt about it. That is, and nobody would dispute that. People aren't going in. The Dubs themselves aren't going to go to all the Leinster games that they used to. Still a big crowd, don't get me wrong. Like, what was the Leinster final attendance? I can't remember, but it was probably in the 40s-ish. Like, Leinster finals, as we remember, Leinster finals used to be a full house. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's, that's a direct correlation to Dublin's success and other dominance, um, aside from ticket prices. I, I would I would I would suggest not having a big impact um, because the Dublins have a big impact on overall attendances because of the yeah. um the, the way it over in, the counties. In, in that instance would it not make sense to Ryanair this and lower the price for all those games and try and get more people in, try and get more people to see this greatest team of all time? It's a bit mad that you're actually putting those prices up. It's going to have the opposite impact. Less people will go to those games. There's like you know, you could, you could. I it's hard to make the case there. for anybody yeah, to go to a Leinster game. I guarantee you, and it goes back to my point about the price of a ticket versus the whole day out expense. I guarantee you, even if it was free in or a tenner into those games, you wouldn't see a linear increase in attendances because it, you know there's still an awful lot. Uh, like to walk to Croke Park, you could spend a tenner between shops and parking and different things. All right, so let's not overstate what people's decisions will be on, on a couple of euro, all right? Um, but what the loss would be right. across tens of thousands. So, like, like, we have to be realistic here. And this is where I, I bring in the comparison with other sports because we we apply that logic to them. But when it comes to GA, we, we think that, seem to think that we're, we we behave totally differently. And I think, you know, as much as you much, it's only to be fair to everyone to compare like with like. Dick, you've been very good with your time this morning. Thanks very much for joining us. No problem, gents. All right, take care. Dick Clark in there giving us uh, his thoughts on the GA ticket price increases. 41,728 was the attendance at the Leinster football final in 2018. Now, in 2016, there was only 38,000 at it. In 2015, there was only 47 at it. Um, you've got to go back all the way to 2008 for the last time that it was a sellout. Gaelic football is in crisis, and to put a higher price in it for something that is in crisis, for something that you want to try and protect and encourage more people to go to, doesn't seem like a, a smart idea to me. And I, just, I don't think the punters deserve to, to shoulder that revenue if it is down to the fact that they didn't make a profit off the games last year. Here's um, Pat Nevin talking about why Chelsea are the closest thing to a squad of Galacticos in English football. You were talking about the dressing room there. Yeah. And you make a very good point about several generations of players because it's got to be in the structure of the thing because it's not, it's not the same group of players. There's mm. lots of different guys in there. And it may well be um, the types of players some of the time to get. Um, it's almost, they're not quite a Galacticos type club but as closest to that as you get in English football 
So when you get a group of Galacticos as are big stars together and they're not pulled together as generally a group by a manager, but just kind of shoved together, you know, not necessarily always a manager that, or the current manager that's actually acquired them. You don't know how the personalities are going to go together. But every manager has got to fight that. Yeah. Every manager has got to try and put his authority on it. Uh, oddly enough, Ancelotti, going back to him, he was one that seemed to be liked a lot um, by just about everyone. Um, and funnily enough, Rafa Benitez was taken on well by most of them. But remember, they weren't considered long-term managers, I don't think, at the time. So it's a kind of strange thing, but what the club could throw back at you quite easily is, oh, yeah, we've had all these managers, we've had all these problems, and we've also had all these trophies as yeah. well. So as yeah. a system, you think it might not be, you know, the cheeriest and the easiest a lot of the time, um, and it might kind of bomb every two or three years. But then I'll start up again really well. Yeah. And at yeah. the moment, it looks like they're right in the midst, right in the midst of a massive change. Um Obviously, they brought in Pulisic. Um, they're going to. I wouldn't be surprised if tomorrow morning or next morning they had another striker in, one or two other changes. And I think you have to look at who those are. The ones that come in are they coming in for from the manager, or are they coming in from the club? They're obviously coming in from the club. Really, that's always been the way, hasn't it? You never got the sense that um, the buying was controlled. Really, even with Mourinho, you kind of felt like there was a. An element of uh, it'll be fine. I'll, I'll I'll just ignore what's happening over there and I'll do my own thing. And it worked for one season, and then it didn't work for the second season. Yeah, the manager is just another player, really, isn't he? He's, he's there's an overarching structure there, and they control everything. And Mauricio um, Sarri understands his role in all of this, and I think Chelsea managers have understood it for quite some time. I, like you're actually, I was actually surprised, kind of, by Antonio Conte's. Uh, demise at Chelsea the way it happened as if he kind of expected better standards from Chelsea Football Club at least with Sarri he's kind of like nah I don't really expect better standards they're probably going to sack me in 12 months anyway he just expects better standards from professional football players and it's a mistake maybe it is a mistake Uh, and it's probably a bigger mistake to expect bigger standards from uh, Chelsea football players like the, the, it's such a, a strange sort of spiraling out of control because they started the season so well, and you would have thought that that might have been the more difficult part for Maurizio Sarri, given the language barrier, given the fact that it was a, a different style of play to the style of play that Antonio Conte left behind. Like when Kenny Cunningham was in here yesterday talking about N'Golo Kante playing in the wrong position. Let's not forget that Kante was playing in that position when Chelsea went unbeaten for a good portion of, of the opening couple of months of the season. There was three unbeaten teams for the first two months of the season and Chelsea were one of them yeah. playing Kante in this position which apparently is so bad. So like, when it comes to a, a tactical spectrum from uh, uh, Maurizio Sarri, I don't think he's a bad tactician. I think he's a, a, an actual, I, I actually think he's an outstanding one and I do think that the, the dressing room Poison is a huge, huge factor behind your downturn in results. Is it poison? Is it, or is it just like a? Well, like, is it? The, the, they just get like two or three of the wrong characters who need to be ultra motivated to earn the quarter of a million a week that they get in their pay packet. Who, who are those characters? I don't know. I don't know because it, like, it just happens so consistently. It's, it's the same dressing room, effectively, with a few minor changes that bailed on. Who was before Mourinho? Was that after Ancelotti? There's somebody in between. Why, how have I forgotten this? After Ancelotti, before Mourinho, it, like uh, I, I can't even remember the kind of order between like Di Matteo and between uh, Hiddink for a brief period, Rafa, 
like it's it's all a bit of a cluster before Mourinho's return for me to be honest so I don't know the chronology while you're googling it there like when it, when it comes to trying to weed out who is actually the problem here you can look at uh, the fact that Hazard has owned up to underperforming under Antonio Conte near the end of his tenure and you can also look at the fact that Antonio Conte fell out with David Luiz I wonder are they two names that you can come up with straight away I don't know I mean like well so Luiz led brilliantly when they won the league and there's definitely loads of managers who think they can oh, Benitez was just before Mourinho yeah and Di Matteo before that. God, they've, they've cycled through them really quickly. Our mate, Andre Villas-Boas, and then Anc- so Ancelotti, Villas-Boas, Di Matteo, Benitez, Mourinho, hitting Conte. Yeah, like I... Uh, Sorry. The, the, the thing is, when it comes to David Luiz, he's got really good performances out of him quite recently. Like, he was the sole reason that Manchester City started that uh, losing, losing-ish run and they ended up losing three games and whatever it was, five, five or six matches. Uh, David Luiz was outstanding that night when they beat Manchester City. Or maybe that is just David Luiz's personality that he needs to feel that he is the centre of attention at all times and is playing in a humongous match every single week. And maybe, like the Emirates should be one of, one of those games from any Chelsea player's perspective. But maybe on a week-in, week-out uh, capacity in the Premier League, it's just not for him. He's a, he's a showtime player. And uh, Sarri can't really struggle with that. He needs consistency. Um, let's move on because we've got an amazing prize to give away and off the ball this week in association with the Irish Heart Foundation. We're giving you the chance to play with either Keith Andrews or Kevin Caban in a five-a-side game and be managed by one of the legendary Ireland managers, John Giles and Brian Kerr. So uh, you can be a teammate of Keith or Kev, which means you can get to kick either Keith or Kev. I recommend if you're going to kick either of them, kick Kev, don't kick Keith. Uh, um, and Gilesy and Brian Kerr will be giving the team talk. So to be with the chance of winning, all you have to do is make a donation to the Irish Heart Foundation and share the fact you've made the donation with the hashtag OTB Irish Heart. We'll pick somebody to go into the draw tonight and the final draw will take place on Sunday with a place on each team. You have to be available to play on Monday, the 28th of January at 12 o'clock. Um, Okay, so let's move on. Uh, Katrina McKiernan was on this week's Saturday panel with Nathan Murphy. She let us know what it's like to be in the zone when you're running. Have a look. Like people ask me, what is the zone? And I suppose the zone is no thought. So when you're in that state of no thought and you're just you're just running, like it's, I've you know, how do you compare it? It's kind of to a, yeah, it's it's like a deep sleep. If you can imagine yourself in a deep yeah. sleep and you know that you're asleep, but you're just asleep. <laughs> and in the same way with the running, that you're in this, you're you're just the mind is quiet and you're just running. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's a, fr- a fabulous place to be. And when you get into that state of mind, you know, you can, you can do anything. And I, have, I was lucky enough to be given that gift to, to get into that state of mind. So that do I you could, still get into that state of mind? Yeah, I can do that. I can, yeah. So that you block out... Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> you can block out everything physically and emotionally that's going on. And you're just, you're just there and you're just, you know, just getting to the finish line. And, and did you have to train yourself when you were younger to you get see, into people, that? People ask me that question. I, I didn't. I was given that gift from God right. that I was able to get into that. That's it. But people can. It's, it is a process. I think how people can get into it, I've spoken to somebody about this, how you can train yourself to get into it is by being more present in everyday life. That's uh, Katrina McKiernan there talking about the zen of, uh, of running. A, a kind of crazily undervalued Irish career Katrina McKiernan like uh, wins the London Marathon if we had a winner of a London Marathon now it'd be like massive it's like she just did it 
Like, oh yeah, she won the London Marathon. Was she a little bit in the shadow of Sonia at the yeah. time? But yeah, she didn't crave any publicity either, did she? No. Not really. The, it was obviously just, and we held ourselves to this incredibly high standard that Sonia obviously expected there's loads of them to come. Yeah. Four, four successive silvers in the World Cross Country. 92, 93, 94, 95. And then a bronze in, in Turin in the team. But in the individual, it was four in a row of silvers. Yeah, it's an incredible record, really, isn't it? It's like even what uh, Fnula McCormick is doing and has done over the last decade or so is is really bloody good from an Irish perspective. So maybe back then we just didn't. It, it, just like, didn't know how good we had it. We just expected our long distance runners to be long yeah. distance runners forever. Um, she probably could have done like the uh, marathons if the, the the timing had worked out. You know, she would have been an Olympic contender. Won on her debut in Berlin in '97, and then won the London Marathon in '98, and then won the Amsterdam Marathon after that, also in 1998. So, uh, you know, pretty re- remarkable career. Where are we going, Tom? Uh, starting with tennis, Ger uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas has become the youngest man to reach the semi-finals of the Australian Open since 2003, and the first Greek player ever to a Grand Slam semi-final. What's the credit of success to? You may not have asked. Uh, well, it's YouTube to see Pussy knocked out defending champion Roger Federer in the previous round, beat Roberto Bautista Agut in four sets, and he'll play either Rafael Nadal or Francis Tiafoe. They're scheduled on court round away quarter past nine. The 20-year-old player, who is also a part-time travel vlogger, yeah, has paid tribute to the video sharing site in his preparation. I watched a few highlights of him on the best possible platform, YouTube. It's a platform that I'm, I'm, I'm not paying to say that or anything. It's, it's a platform that I used to do the analyzing. What is this YouTube thing he's talking yeah. about? He's not paid to say it either. He's, <laughs> not yet, he's, anyway. he's, he was keen to stress there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the women's quarterfinals of the Rod Laver Arena. Danielle Collins, of course, knocked out Wimbledon champion Angelique Kerber in the previous round, is through to the semifinals. The American overcame Anastasia Pavlichenkova in three sets. She lost the first, but came back to win at 2-6-7-5-6-1. She'll meet either Petra Kvitova or home favourite Ashley Barty in the next round. They're just on court at the moment. As you just mentioned, Chelsea manager Maurizio Sarri is said to have held clear the air talks with his players at training yesterday. The Italian was highly critical of his team's performance following Saturday's 2-0 defeat at Arsenal. It's led to speculation over Sarri's future, but claims, uh, reports claim rather, that he still has the support of the majority of the Blues squad. Uh, Stick with Maurizio Sarri and the deal for Gonzalo Higuain was described as in the air by Milan assistant Luigi Riccio uh, last night. Higuain is on loan at Milan currently but didn't feature in that 2-0 win over Genoa yesterday and Chelsea have until noon on Wednesday to complete that deal for Higuain if they want him to be part of the squad for that semi-final second leg with Spurs on Thursday. Uh, Arsenal defender Hector Bellerin will miss the rest of the season. The Spain fullback has been ruled out for six to nine months after rupturing his ACL. He picked up that injury and stretched it off in Arsenal's 2-0 win over Chelsea at the weekend. And West Brom boss Darren Moore says they're not thinking too much about promotion back to the Premier League at this stage of the season. There's four points behind championship leaders Leeds after winning 2-0 at Bolton last night. Moore told Sky Sports News there's still plenty that can happen in the remaining 18 games. They won 2-0 last night at Bolton thanks to those goals from Jay Rodriguez and Sam Field. Tom I know we're at the right end of the table. I really do. It is just the one game. We've moved on again tonight. In terms of talking about uh, anything towards the end of the season, we'll see where we are. But until then, we just keep going. All right, Tom, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. So Brian O'Driscoll was doing this last Friday. Here he is talking about the role that Joey Carberry must have for Ireland during the Six Nations. And it's a much easier game. Carberry's going to get two games in the World Cup. Johnny will play um, Japan and Scotland. Carberry will get the next two. 
all going well, Johnny will be back in for the, um, for the quarterfinals. That's how it'll be mapped out. So that's the games that they give him to see if... But what if, like... That all going well line, yeah, is that well, not exactly what Joe Schmitz wants to avoid, having to say all going well, that after losing to Argentina last time with all the injuries, he doesn't want to end up in a situation where we're going into a World Cup quarterfinal and there's a slight doubt of, well, we've seen Joey in these games, but we haven't seen him against England, England or one of the top five, six teams in the world? Yeah, yeah. It's, or is um, that just sport that you have to take those risks? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. It depends on what you want to do. You want to... Is he still planning? Is this still a, a stepping stone to the World Cup, or does he want to win another grand, you know, back-to-back what do you Grand think? Slams? What do you think? Because like um, we did really well in '07, we did really well in 2011. I think. I, I think Joey will get at least one start in the Six Nations, at least one start um, against more than Italy. Maybe, maybe France. Yeah. Maybe yeah. France at home is a good game because it's a really good opposition but at home and yeah. we're confident that we've got a crowd and everything. Yeah. Maybe that would be a good game to give them uh, a starting berth. All right, so uh, that is Brian Driscoll talking about um, Joey Carberry perhaps starting the France game. Alan Quinlan, how are you? I'm very good, Jim. It could happen. Very well happen. I think he'd be... Do you not it, give him the England game? No. <laughs> you could, it could. Um, Sexton hasn't played yet, so it depends. It looks like he's going to be back training this week with yeah, Portugal and yeah. stuff. is going to be okay. The trip to Portugal seems very important. Like, Yeah, it is important. Um, I know from my own experience going on those trips pre and post Christmas, which I've done throughout my career with, 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 with Ireland squads, um, they're a great opportunity to kind of fix smaller details, get to know each other again, get a bit of cohesion in the squad. I always think a line-out guys, the forwards, get a chance to look at some of the videos. They'll be doing a lot of analysis. I don't think it'll be a heavy week for him. Um, I think it's more after a kind of a block of European games. It's it's a chance for a little bit of recovery. And obviously the coaches will be doing a lot of preparation up to this point since November, the international coaches. And um, it's they're great weeks to, to, to know your role again inside out and switch different calls from the provincial setups and stuff like that. And uh, they're exciting because it means you're kind of... Yeah. The big game is just around the corner. So if you're getting extra game time... Um, in the Pro 14 this weekend, are you a little bit... No, I think you'd be a little bit... Um, you'd like to go... I thought, and we spoke about it yesterday, maybe Sean O'Brien or Robbie Henshaw would have stayed behind to play, but they're the type of players who seem to be able to be out for a period of time and rock up and, and perform at the top level. Sean O'Brien did that in 2016. He was out for a number of weeks, and then he... He was brilliant against the All Blacks, so he can do that. Robbie Henshaw has done it before as well. Uh, remarkable recovery from his shoulder injury last year when he yeah. went and featured with Leinster at the end of the season. So they can do that. They'll probably do a bit of rugby-specific stuff this week, and when I say that, it means they're probably, you know, they'll do some rugby conditioning with the ball, probably down and ups, hitting pads, a little bit of contact for them as well, which is a brilliant physical hit as well for you as a, as a player. Other guys will be rest and recovery. They're straight in the match day squad. I'm, I'm making that assumption on the back of the fact they're going yeah, to... Yeah, big time. Yeah, big time. I think they will. And it, like I said as well yesterday, they'll have to train well this week and be sharp and look sharp and stuff like that because um, Joe puts a lot of faith in guys who've delivered before at the, on the big stage and Sean O'Brien has done that um, so many times. Um, he just needs a run of of a little bit of luck now and... and um, Get get a run in the team, and and he can have a big impact. Robbie Henshaw looked incredibly sharp. They both looked really sharp at the weekend. 
Um, so they'll both feature, yeah, there's no doubt about that at this stage. Just on uh, giving Carberry a go or giving other people a go when, say, injuries aren't dictating the situation, that you're actually voluntarily saying, let's try Carberry out in a big it's, game. It's the best time to do it because it's kind of like, you know, historically in the, in the Pro 14 with some of the provinces, you put in five or six guys in one swoop and then That's they lose how. and they don't yeah. play as well and you're kind of saying, Jesus, as an individual, you'd say, God, I'd love to play with the top team, me to come in and play with 14 other guys who are the, the top players. So the idea of bringing in one or two, making one or two changes uh, and not making a raft of changes, particularly for Italy or something like that, or, or in November historically, which happens on the when you play the Tier 2 nation, um, you're giving them a chance to play. But Carberry's done that and I think Going back to Australia in, in the summer, starting him in that first test, even though they lost the game and it was a difficult kind of pressure for him, yeah. um, I think he coped quite well and he's well capable of doing that. And that gap, kind of gap is close, closing a little bit. I, I do wonder though, Like I know obviously we've built up great squad depth and to win the World Cup you need uh, squad depth, but you also need a bit of luck on the injury front regardless of how deep your squad is. Yeah. And Johnny Sexton... Like this is the last chance, and I know you're not saying, Jared, we should be benching him for the whole Six Nations. You're only mentioning one or two games, but this is our last chance of test intensity matches with Ireland. Is the Joe Schmidt game plan that set in stone at this point that we don't need Johnny Sexton to play all this game, and we don't we don't need to work on the game plan because it is basically our last chance to do it in that high octane environment? You want to win the games first and foremost. So I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to the Six Nations, and um, I think it's such a massive tournament. It generates all the money. I know the bigger picture is the World Cup, um, and you have to. I think if you can get players very close in performance levels, um, Johnny Sexton is still up here for sure, and the gap is closed. And Carberry's getting that more experience. He's played. 15 or 16 games this year at out half, which is, is, is a brilliant return for him, and he's getting much more experience there. Um, maybe not that many. I think it's 13 or 14 games, something like that, but he's playing a number, a number of games starting. The next step is now play a few more Ireland games, but Sexton is not going to go, well, look, I'll step aside. I know it's the coach's decision. He'll want to play. Um, but Drico makes a really good point that if he can slip him in there for sure and get him 20 minutes or start him in a game yeah. and he plays really well what will that do for his confidence and his belief and the players and around training. him like, for sure yeah, yeah for sure yeah. but I don't think there's going to be much tinkering for the, for the, for the English game for sure Alright we've got Robert Kitson of the Guardian on the line to get the view from England about um, just how prepared Eddie Jones' squad is for the start of the Six Nations Rob good morning to you um, I guess that, that is my first question what's the general sense of preparedness at the moment when it comes to the available players, the style of play and, and where England are with regards to what you can expect from them in the Six Nations? Well, good morning. It, it depends if you take the view that you rely on Europe for your form guide or you rely on uh, certain other uh, measures. If you're relying on Europe, clearly it's, uh, it wouldn't be all that optimistic, would it, um, given only Saracens have made the last eight. But if you talk to Eddie Jones, he, he makes a clear distinction. He always has done between you know what happens at club level and what happens at, uh, at international level. And, and you know on that front, England actually they, they've got one or two bumps and bumps and bruises, but they haven't got as bad an injury situation as they have had uh, in the last, certainly compared with last year. And so from that point of view, I, I know there's a doubt about Owen Farrell. Uh, we, we're still not quite sure how his thumb is uh, for that opening match. 
Um, but give or take that, they've got Vodapola back, uh, both of them. They've got uh, Mara Otoji back, uh, who makes a big difference. Um, so, yeah, I think cautiously more optimistic than they maybe were last year. The, the hangover from the Lions seemed to affect England very significantly last year. You know, it, it tells you his form. He just looked like a player who was very tired. He didn't have that dynamism that we would have expected from him, <coughs> that game-breaking ability, just the ability to take over a game that we've seen him do. Is he back to something like that rampaging best? Well, I think so. I think so. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, the Lions tour didn't seem to affect all the Irish boys particularly, did it? Um, but it did affect a lot of the English guys. And, you know, you've you got to be careful. You disappear down the, you know, that, that, that argument of, of, <laughs> of, of how you prepare your players best. But, yeah, I, I, I think absolutely. I think, you know, a number of England's top players are looking a little bit sharper at the moment than they were last year, certainly. In terms of the, the style of play... Do we know exactly what Eddie Jones' England looks like, what their identity is? Because it, it seems as if every time a certain style of play emerges, the players that it's built around go down with injury. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about number eight and I'm thinking about the centres and I'm just thinking about what he wants his ball carriers to do in particular. It seems that maybe finally he's going to have his first choice pack and his first choice centre pairing to be able to dominate and carry that ball and, and be that kind of... Um, old school side is is that being unfair or is that actually the kind of what he's trying to turn this team into no I, I think that's not unfair at all I think two of the words you use they were ball carrier and dominate and I think those those feature very highly in, in Eddie's uh, lexicon um, I think he's had a look at what he's got he's decided that he's not going to rival the All England I'm going to rival the All Blacks or, or anybody else when it comes to spreading it wide and, and, and just completely having an all-court game maybe. So he wants to break the game line um, preferably as quickly as possible, preferably with a with a big bloke uh, with a ball in his hands. And, and yeah, I, I, it is tricky because you can't pack your side with 15 giants clearly and at the exclusion of all the other more subtle skills. Uh, that said, if you've got T.O., maybe two Alangi, maybe both of them uh, in your centres. If you've got a, a back row with, with at least one, or one Vodapola at, at number eight uh, and a couple of other uh, pretty big big beasts roaming around, I think he's. Uh, I think it makes England more difficult to play against. I think that's what Eddie really wants. He wants them to be a real tough nut to crack. And I think if you've got that, then, yeah, you can, you've got a chance in any game, haven't you? Rob, good morning. It's Alan Quinlan here. Um, I was just wondering, is, is, is Eddie under pressure, given the results last year, or did he get a little bit of a pass with some of the injuries like the Vunapolos and having maybe Tuolangi back in the mix? Um, and what's the expectations for this Six Nations? If he, you know, if he loses the first game or if he doesn't do well in the Six Nations, or is the bigger picture just the World Cup for England? Yeah, I think it's 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 interesting. He was definitely under pressure at the start of the autumn. Um, there was a lot of, well, off the back of that losing tour in South Africa. I think in the autumn they 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 they, they played well for a, for a, a good spell against New Zealand. They had a very good twenty minutes against Australia. Um, and I think that's that's you know reassured certainly him and maybe a few other people that, that that there is some scope there. Having said that, I think if you asked him, he'd say, "Listen, all I'm concentrated on the world is the World Cup." Uh, yes obviously the next match, all those sorts of cliches. But the, the World Cup is what is what he was appointed to, to do well in, and he's hanging his hat very much on that. I, if you're saying, are they on track for the World Cup, I would say they're you know, six months behind where they would ideally like to be for, for various reasons, uh, injuries fairly high amongst that. I know you said at the start, if you're going on European form, that it's not looking so optimistic, but I tell you, 
given the the names that that you rattle off and the squad they will have for the follow for for Saturday week, uh, we certainly won't underestimate them. And I think I'm not being uh, <clears throat> um, just giving you compliments here, but I think that English side, if they get every, if he gets everyone fit and well. Um, they're well capable of uh, not just winning the Six Nations, but but competing at the World Cup again for what it's worth. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, and I, I think you're right, potentially. But it's a, that's always that word potentially, isn't it? They've got to show it in these big games, and I think the two big games for them in the Six Nations, without question, are, are obviously the one in Dublin and the one in Cardiff. You know, away from Twickenham, away from those home comforts, uh, and if they win. I'd have thought you'd have to win one of those to be taken seriously to win a World Cup, wouldn't you? I think uh, yeah. it's certainly where where I'm sitting. But I think if they get, yeah, if they get, Dublin's tricky for both sides, for Ireland and England. You know, you think it's it's the it's the the, the big two at the moment for at um, you know up first, and it's it's a tough start. You'd certainly like to kind of ease your way a small bit, even though it's difficult in the Six Nations. But um, I think if he if he gets if he gets a a result or a really good performance in in Dublin, and then gets that result away. I think that could kickstart a bit of a resurgence in this team because genuinely, there's some outstanding players in that that English squad, and if they gel together, I think they could seriously get back on track. Yeah, it's interesting. And if you look, we uh, you know we all say it's so easy to generalise about Europe, isn't it? But actually, you look at who's top seeds in Europe. You know, Saracens who who, who providing a big chunk of the England team. Saracens. So it, it doesn't necessarily apply that England are completely uh, completely hopeless. No, but there is, I'm sure, concerns from an English club point of view. And I know you've already pointed out the disconnect to a certain extent between the RFU and the Premiership clubs, certainly more disconnected than the IRFU will be with the Irish provinces. So even allowing for that, there must be a little bit of concern from Eddie Jones's point of view that the Premiership teams haven't performed as well as they did in Europe. Or is he buying into the narrative that, say, the Premiership clubs just care about the Gallagher Premiership and really the European Cup is actually second fiddle? Well, I think... I think in, from his perspective, he's always drawn a slight distinction. Of course, he would he would like to see uh, you know lots of English clubs doing well, um, but it, but in many ways, you know, it's, it's a problem that's been around long before him. You know, if I was just looking at the at the stats, you know, it's in the last ten years, seven of those ten years, uh, English clubs haven't been able to get more than two sides through to the quarterfinals of Europe of the Champions Cup. So, you know, that's a, that's a, that's not a blip or a sort of cycle really. That's quite a that's a bit of a trend. You know, I think I think it, it boils down it does boil down without question. It's not about money particularly because Edinburgh, you know, are right up there, aren't they? So I I think it's more to how much you can prior, prioritize the competition just in your own head even even if it's not, you know, about wrestling players or what have you. It, it, it's giving it a real good run and I think some of those English sides, I think funnily enough It'll be better next year. I think Leicester will be better. I think Sale will be better. Uh, for example, Northampton coming up, you know, Saracens next. So I think <clears throat> watch his space a little bit because I think it might be, uh, it, you know, you never know. The, the wheel can turn. Uh, but it, a little bit. I, I think English rugby, as, as Alan's saying, I think I think they've got the players. It's just a case of, of getting all your all your ducks in a row and, and, and making sure that they're really firing to their to their maximum potential. Rob, it's Alan again. Um, do you do you envisage change in in the in the structure of the Gallagher, Gallagher Premiership? Because and I did read your piece a couple of weeks ago after Munster beat Gloucester, and I know you were you were getting a bit of banter from people online, <laughs> but and I agreed with what you said, and we don't disagree that the player welfare system here is really good. And I've spoken about it. I played in it. I was one of those players who got managed in that system before. Um, but do you think 
it's time for a little bit of change in the clubs. And I do understand also that the Gallagher Premiership is the bread and butter, is the financial kind of dri- driver for, for the English clubs. But genuinely, we as the Irish provinces who, you know, our model is good and, and we're happy with it. Um, we'd love to see, you know, the English teams kind of particularly some of, uh, you know, Wass and Bath were poor this year. Leicester were really poor. It makes for a better competition. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you'd be glad to hear that I, I read the, the very good piece that you wrote the other day as well. And <laughs> the, it, uh, it wasn't about, insulting, about... I hope, to, to, you know, it was just laying down a couple of pointers that I genuinely believe um, they have to do something now and, and listen to the players, and it will benefit the game in general, I think, myself. But Yeah, no, I think, I think I mean, I think there's, without question, there's a lot of improvement to be made in England and what happens between players 17, 18, up to 21. I think I think there's big issues there, to be honest, because either these guys aren't playing or, or they're... They don't seem to be coming you know, through, the young players, and I'm surprised because, you know, they're under 20s, dominated at, at, at World Cup level, the Six Nations, they dominate, and, and there's just not a huge number of them kind of jumping through. I know Singleton and Thorley now are in the Eddie Jones' squad, and maybe it's a bit of luck. We've produced Larmer and Levy and Ryan and these guys in the last kind of two seasons. Maybe it's just a bit of luck on our side. But I'm just sometimes surprised that you don't see a kind of raft of four or five, 19, 20, 21-year-olds grabbing attention at international level and, and kind of making that step up, step up really quickly. And yeah. Die Young has been quite outspoken as well. Where's all his academy players? Where's his depth yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and I, and I, I'm not sure that's a problem that goes away overnight. I think there's a, I think often the, the, those younger English players physically they'll, they'll dominate maybe at under twenty level. They, they, they're pretty good at producing big, big blokes. Um, but just that, that step up, you know, when they've got to really thrive and the, that next level and the, the skills that you need uh, 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 t- don't tend to be there or are there in very few cases. And you're right. I mean, they haven't really produced. You know your Fords and your Farrells, um, and that golden sort of and the Atojis, the sort of golden generation Slades, if you like, um, who, who did so well in those those years. I'm not so sure. Like, like a decent year side this year, I think England under twenty, but yeah. it's a long way to the top from there, as I say. They have produced them, but I, I would expect a raft of more guys. But anyway, look, thanks, thanks for yeah. that. Uh, I did want to ask you about who you think is going to be the, the starting halfback partnership. Um, you kind of forget that there's been this attempt to get the two tens playing and uh, ten and twelve at various stages over the last eighteen months or so. Is it time for Eddie Jones to decide one of his out halves is better than the other, and that Owen Farrell, assuming he's fit, will start at ten now and all the way through to the World Cup? Well, it's 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 not quite that simple to be honest. A A Farrell's got this. Some problems, so you know if, if he doesn't start, then then Ford has to start probably. Uh, Farrell's obviously his captain, um, so uh, that that gives you a certain um, bragging rights. There's no question where Farrell wants to play. He wants to play at ten. So does George Ford. But for the good of the side, they, they still haven't really nailed down uh, the inside centre position. So there's a few things going around. I think in a, I think in a perfect world, uh, he'd have Farrell and two. And two big centres with maybe George Ford coming on when the, uh, when the game breaks up a little bit later on. Uh, Farrell moving out to twelve. I think that's that's probably what he's looking at, uh, but that might be slightly different for this uh, start of this Six Nations. And who do you think is going to be the starting scrum half? Starting so scrum half. Well, <laughs> that's a good. That's another good question. It, it should be Ben Youngs in, in the sense that he's he's the man in possession. I'd keep an eye on this Dan Robson. He's uncapped, but he's he should have played. You know, at least a couple of years ago. I think he's a good player. But again, it's a step up. He, I think Eddie. 
should have blooded him a little bit earlier, uh, had the opportunity to, didn't take it. So uh, a little bit open. I, I, it wouldn't entirely surprise me uh, if, he, if he went for, for Robson. Um, but I think that'll be decided in training in uh, in Portugal next week. Final one from uh, me anyway, Rob. Do you think that Eddie Jones is correct in the fact that he says that Johnny Sexton has the bat phone and he's got this phone that only he's allowed to pick up to the referees? <laughs> well, I think we, we, we all know that Eddie likes to, um, you know, stir the pot occasionally. Uh, Johnny, I'm a, as you know, a big admirer of, of Johnny Sexton. I think he's a, a top player and I think he's entitled to talk to referees, particularly when he's captain, you know, of Leinster. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's just, uh, just one of those little uh, pebbles in the pond. I'm a monster man anyway, Rob, and I, I, I agree with Eddie. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm well, joking. He does. He, he's, uh, some of his joking. comments are funny and humorous. I Actually, two years ago, I was like, I hate Eddie Jones now because he, he brought Sexton's parents into it. But um, in the last two years, I've just come to enjoy the, the little bit of banter and the stuff <laughs> he throws out there. It's all mind games, and it'll have no effect the next week. It should be a cracker. Yeah, absolutely. Rob, good stuff. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you. Rob Kitson there, uh, rugby reporter with The Guardian, talking to us this morning. Um, yesterday in The Telegraph, Stuart Barnes was saying Ben Young's a shot. Shouldn't, shouldn't be starting at, at nine? It's, it's a problem when you're a halfback and your pack are getting beaten and you're losing matches and uh, their, their form in the Premiership has been dreadful and in Europe dreadful as well. So it's impossible, no matter who you are. If you're Conor Murray, Aaron Smith the top scrum halves in the world, if your packer are under pressure, the, the halfbacks just get a, a lambasting. And look at cast against Munster, or games where Joey Carberry didn't kind of step up step up, or play that well this year. It's, it's the issues have come elsewhere. So the halfbacks get a lot of, of, of blame. He'll be behind a different pack when he plays in that English pack um, in the Six Nations. Yeah. Um, a lot of big, strong, beasts of men. So... Um, he makes a relevant point that maybe his form isn't top notch, but I think he—I'd be very surprised if he starts with Dan Robson. Um, I think he will start with Ben Youngs. Uh, what's going to happen in that game from this remove? We can—I just want to see where you're. It's at very at the difficult, Jerry, because I always found being involved in Six Nations squads in my career, and then in the last number of years watching them and kind of been really into the preparation and looking into them at the start. Historically, it's hard to get up and running yeah. and hit kind of fifth gear straight away, no matter who you are, because the, the preparation time is so, so short. And you get a game or two into it, you get through those matches, and you tend to play better towards the end of the tournament. Um, so it just depends who kind of gets it right. If you're going on European form and confidence and... Uh, the expectation is that we're going to win by nine points. And that's, that's that's not unreasonable. That's not unreasonable. Nine no, points it's in not. Six Nations game is huge. I just think if they pick the likes of is this not an eighteen fifteen game. Is it not like a? It's, not it's one a of those? six or seven pointer. I think either way, and um, I think England will try to ruffle Ireland up a little bit and stop their flow and and do what Exeter did to Munster at the weekend. Kind of close them off with the yeah. umbrella type defence. Get in their faces, kick a lot. Um, Leinster can cope with that and have 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 ability to cope with that a little bit better because they're a better team at the moment. So and there'll be more Leinster players on the field, but it'll be a really good Irish side that'll be selected guys who are in top form. You think if you can get the ball to Earls Stockdale, Ringrose looks as sharp as ever. He looks a different player. 
Does he start Henshaw or Aki at 12? Um, there's a lot of quality in that Irish side and, and, and a lot of power as well and experience. So I think um, I'm optimistic that they'll, they'll get up and running. And, but it won't be a perfect performance from either side, I think, and it's difficult to, to, get, to get up and running straight away. England will come with their power as well. Like If they pick Theo and Tuolangi in the centre, for example, that's, that's a lot of muscle, that's a lot of power, it's a lot of directness. Billy Vunapola um, at eight. Te- oh, yeah, Vunapola back, Mako Vunapola at loose head. Um, the serious, serious power. Sinclair is a big ball carrier. Um, you know, Itoje, he played really well last week. He's back to top form. Will Launchbury play with him? Will Laws play? Yeah, and it used to be that Billy Vinopolo would like give 45, 50 minutes of all out and then he'd be a bit tired. They have no one to bring off, but Nathan Hughes is in now as well, so they can... They have a lot of power, and I think for Ireland, it's about keeping the pace and the intensity at a high level yeah. uh, for as long as they can and hope... Physically, they've got to match any big big team you play against. You're going to have to match them physically. And but Ireland are well capable of imposing themselves now, and they're very efficient and accurate in what they do. And, and like I said, Portugal is about that this week, knowing the role inside out again. And we hear that from players all the time. But that's what you need to do under Joe Schmidt. So he'll be hammering kind of a game plan over to the players this week, and and they'll prep it hard next week. And um, um, I think Ireland will just about shade that one, but you will, I wouldn't be expecting a. Cl- I can ex- you can expect a lot of intensity in the game, um, but it's just difficult to get really kind of into that fourth or fifth gear and get a great performance early on. Yeah, yeah, those games are they're scratchy games generally. The Six Nations isn't the place where we see the most champagne rugby that often. Like no, maybe because last year, maybe the last towards the game. end, Ireland yeah. were really, and and that's the way they grew into the tournament last year. So it's about managing it and not looking too far ahead. Scotland's a big challenge the week after, so it's an incredibly difficult start for Ireland. Um, you know, really, really hard, but they're capable of that now, and it's a big test for them. More, another few questions will be asked of them. I think it's more of um, there's probably more pressure in Ireland now because you know they'll be built up next week by Eddie Jones and his squad that they're best team in the he's world. done it already best team in the world they beat New Zealand the launch is tomorrow so we get, we, we get to see all the, the lines that he's been practicing in front of the mirror yeah. for the last week oh, you're handsome you're handsome aren't you Eddie but I don't think I don't think there'll be I, I don't think there'll be a Grand Slam one we're best placed to win a Grand Slam but I just have a feeling that it'll be a championship one on four four wins. Who's going to beat us? Wales. Wales is going to be tricky in the last one. Um, England are, are a serious danger next week, and, and they'll love the fact that, f- for a change, they're, they're underdogs and everyone's kind of writing them off a little bit. But I guarantee you, when he names a team next week, there'll be serious firepower on that side. Done. Done. Yeah. Done and dusted. Yeah, all right. But, so that's it. We're, we're going to win the Six Nations, but no slam. Yeah. We might win a slam, yeah, a grand slam, yeah, we may do. Um, but as long as we're going to um, Cardiff for the last weekend, I think that's, that'll be great if we are, whether yeah. it's a slam or a championship. So long as we're live. Yeah, for Alan, good stuff. Thanks, Thanks very much for that. Um, so tomorrow morning, Anthony Moyle is going to join us in studio from 7.45am to look ahead to the start of the GAA League. We'll also chat to the former Olympians and athletics coaches Gary Ryan and Tom Common about the cross-pollination of sport and the importance that speed plays. Uh, so this is one of those things that we've been kind of covering on the show for years, um, just the general sense that if we could educate every Irish child to run as fast as they possibly can, this would have a knock-on impact for our 
our athletics teams, but also it would make our rugby teams, our football teams, our soccer teams, our hurling teams uh, better. There's no sport in the world, really, that if you could learn to sprint, you wouldn't be better at. Do you learn to sprint? Did someone ever teach no, you how to not, run properly? Not, 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 a, not at a young age. And, and then you get these techniques when you start training. And, and <coughs> Gary Ryan would have worked with us. Tom right. Cummins would have worked with us in Limerick. And um, they were athletes there. And then they, they started coaching and teaching us. And it is about techniques. And I'm a big believer of technique for young, young kids. Um, and knowing the dynamics of getting the best out of themselves and 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 using that power that we all kind of have. Everyone has a different level. Yeah. But just getting the technique right. And some some techniques are really poor in, in running and they don't get the best out of themselves. So the education for young kids is really, really important and teaching them techniques. Did you yeah. find you could learn it later on in life? A little bit better. I was never the quickest anyway. <laughs> Someone like David Wallace was just naturally a, a bullet. But you could see massive increases from different guys throughout the whole squads that I would have been involved in when you're doing the technical work and just practicing agility and then you kind of do the power stuff in the gym and it, it makes a huge difference to your agility and speed yeah. when did that come into the Munster camp? Um, gradually over the years you know when we start, when I would have started in 1997 the first year you know speed was just go out and sprint yeah. then it was kind of gradually as the years went on it was broken down to work with sprinters and you're doing certain kind of leg drives and techniques on the floor where you're kind of leaning forward you're pulling sleds all that kind of stuff you see CJ Stander now before a match he's been held by these kind of rubber bands and that's just to fire up his muscles and he's doing kind of sprints after him and and all that kind of stuff. So it's um, gradually as the years went on and sports science increased and more information was there for people. I meant to ask, um, at the back of the scrum, Jack Conan pulls on the two second rows. And it's the referee like pulling an elastic band back, if you like, and kind of releasing it and driving is. with it. It's, okay, just, yeah. it's for the hit and the, the scrum. The like, get down, get down. And yeah. he just says, oh, yeah, 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 sorry. And then the next time he just does it again. I was like, it's kind of putting them on a bit of a, stretching them back, if you like, and then, then you firing with them. And okay. it's just giving a little bit of a dynamic right. surge forward. That that initial hit that you get in the scrum, ideally then you want to get in a locked position. So if you go down the scrum and guys are moving their feet, you're kind of... Yeah. You just want to get that initial surge forward, locked and loaded, and then totally legal? translate the power. Yeah, it is. It's fine. Yeah. Totally illegal or legal? No, legal. Oh, it's it is? Legal. Okay, it's yeah, fine. Okay. It's, there's nothing illegal about the it. The referee no. was like, and then he was screw you, referee. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not illegal. All right. Good stuff. Uh, yeah. Right. Busy show for you tomorrow then. And then tonight, uh, they're looking at Connacht Rugby and the failure of the hand pass rule to make it into this year's leagues as well on uh, News Talk from 7pm on Off The Ball. So uh, make sure you stay tuned to offtheball.com for your updates across the day and you can listen back to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify or indeed wherever it is that you get your podcast. We'll see you tomorrow. Good luck. So if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45 a.m.